My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Over the years, various parts of the country have had good times on the cod fishing scene, either with numbers of fish, with big fish, or if they're really lucky, with both. Right up there on all counts are the ports of Folkestone and Dover in Kent, and in particular fishing with Mick and Matt Coker aboard Royal Charlotte and Portia respectively, fishing over and around the Varn Bank, plus hundreds of offshore wrecks. We'll get to the main topic of conversation in due course, but before we do, Mick, could you give us a quick historical flavour of the fishing generally on your patch? Well obviously it was a lot better in the past, there's not so much now, due to commercial fishing basically, but um, we sort of all around the coast was pretty well the same, I think, you know, around this part of the coast, it was all pretty seasonal, you know, where now it's no season at all. It's everything, any time of the year. What about species mix? We had the cod all through the year, obviously, but we had winter cod and then we used to catch the summer cod. And then uh, in the middle of the summer there onwards, we used to catch a few congas and that. We used to get black bream, we used to have place, uh, usual sort of fish. What you would get, you know, we used to get a turbot in September sometimes a few in the spring, but it was mainly cod fishing. We used to do mainly cod fishing most of the time because that was the easiest one to catch. Being a small boat angler based up here in Lancashire, I personally haven't fished out of either Forkston or Dover, but as a magazine reader, I'm very aware of what yourself and Royal Charlotte have produced as far back in time as I can remember. So what was it then that brought you into charter fishing in the first place? Well, by accident, really... Our family's always been on the sea most of the time, I think. I think my great-grandfather's brother, he was drowned in a sailing ship, sunk, he used to sail around the world. And then my grandfather, he was commercial fishing. Uh, then that was in sailing smacks, you know. They sort of basically went wherever the wind blew them. So it was east. they come round to the southwest, and if it was southwest, they'd go finish up around the east coast. But they used to do sort of five-day trips, I believe. And then my father... He got into. He was fishing with my granddad anyway. You know, they was doing like trawling and that and drift netting. But I mean, the summer they used to have a summer trade. Obviously, it was easier to do the summer trade with the anglers and pleasure trippers and things like that. So, you know, in the summer they were doing that. But my father used to work off Dungeness in the winter, and then up in the bay off Dim Church in the summer for the pleasure tripping. So we've uh, always been on the sea doing something, earning a living from the sea basically. So what influence then did you get from your father to work on the sea and ultimately get into the charter angling? I don't know, I think it's just in you, isn't it? I mean, I've always been on the sea, I've been on the sea since I was about two years old because I wouldn't sleep, so when I was a kid, so my mum used to say, take him with you, so he used to stick me on the boat and I used to sleep in the lifebelt and when I used to go to sleep at the end of the day, he used to bring me ashore in a sandbag because people used to think I was dead. That's how it all started. But how did it progress with your son Matthew now following in your footsteps? That's it, yeah, he's got the easy bit now, isn't it? But um, we used to have uh, two or three boats, you know, we used to work off the beach and that and off the sand, but um, used to do pleasure tripping in the summer. For pleasure trippers, used to do mackerel trips and that, and then in the autumn you put the drift nets in for the errands, and then at Christmas time for the sprats you put the drift nets in. Then in the spring you go trawling, and then into May, June you paint the boat up again to take the... Pleasure trippers, but I mean, the pleasure tripping trade was going slower and slower because everybody was going abroad in the 60s, wasn't it? So we was doing a bit more angling and um, we was actually getting ready to go drift netting for herrings. But uh, someone came up to us and said uh, there was a fishing festival at Folkestone, Cod Festival, 
and uh, then got a boat and they offered us I think it was four pound a day to take the boat to Folkestone so we said make it six quid and we take the boat to Folkestone for three days which we did and that was a start and from there on we kept on with the angling because we found it much easier. But he was originally based at Folkestone and moved over to Dover for that reason I presume. No, we was based at Dungeness mainly. Our boats were at Dungeness. We had beach boats then. And we used to move down into the bay at Dimchurch on the sand there on the slipway in the summer. And then back in the winter, we go back up to Dungeness and Laid. We had two uh, winch places up there. They were beach boats then. Of course, then we went to Folkestone. So then you got a harbour, so you could go for a bigger boat then. So went on from there. So what was your progression through the various boats you've had? And how did you settle on the name Royal Charlotte? Uh, I don't know, I didn't know what to call the boat when I, was, I had an old book of, I think it was uh, boats, I think, and I think she was the East Indiaman, I think a tea clipper. And I was just reading it, Royal Charlotte and Royal William it was, and I thought well, it sounded alright, so we finished up with that. They were pretty successful, two tea clippers. Was it progressively bigger and better, or did you jump straight into Royal Charlotte once you decided that angling was for you? No, we, we, we had beach boats running about 23 feet. We had the Iona, well, we, we had the Daisy, but we didn't use it. We had the Iona, which we used for pleasure tripping most of the time. She was a good boat. She provided us a good living. Then we had the Sea Venture. She was another beach boat. And that was the first boat we took to Folkestone, which was a Sea Venture. Then we bought the Lady Hamilton, which was 28 foot. And then we went for the Lady Hamilton. We went for the Lucky Ella, then the Delilah, then the Porsche, with the first Porsche that was, which is now... I believe down Falmouth somewhere, probably under a different name, doing mackerel trips. And then we went on to the Royal Charlotte, which was 76, that was Royal Charlotte. And then from there on, we went to our next boat, which is the Catamaran, the Porsche, which we've got now. The Royal Charlotte we've had for 40, 76, so it'll be 41 years, isn't it? Looks like it has plenty of angling decks, Bears. That's it, yeah. I mean, one of the boats we had was a Daisy which was uh, one of our trawlers, pleasure tripping boats. And I believe that was the name of the boat that my grandfather used to be on. Because my grandfather, he was always in fishing and sailing smacks. And then he went on to the early 1900s, onto the steam trawlers. And he was working out of Rye on the steam trawlers. And um, uh, the fishing got so bad because they overfished it, as usual. And uh, they couldn't even catch enough fish to pay for the coal. So, you know, they put in the boiler. So he said, sod this and join the army and went to India. And uh, that boat, not long after that, I don't know if it hit a mine or got torpedoed, and it was sunk with all hands. So good job he wasn't on it. And now that Matthew's entered the business, I notice he has Royal Charlotte and you've gone for Porsche. We swap between the two. Sometimes I take one, sometimes he takes one. He's like, it's like we have a grandfather. He was in the Navy on the battleships, and uh, he went through both world wars and I think most of the boats he ever went on got sunk but he was never on them <laughs> and my grandmother she said uh, she all oh, she said he used to go away for six months at a time she said he went away once he said he didn't come back for three years she went out the door he didn't come back for three years I think he was up the Yellow River was it stuck up the river or somewhere got about a bit then yeah I think he was on the hood but he was never on there when it was he wasn't on there when it got sunk so he was, he was pretty lucky Moving on to the fishing now, I was talking with Alan Yates who tells me that when he first started fishing the Kent coast, cod were quite scarce fish and the big cod were particularly thin on the ground. 
Then we had the big freeze book 1962-63, which he thinks kept all the small predatory fish at bay which would eat fish eggs, because by the late 1960s the cod fishing in the southeast and everywhere else around the country got better and better year on year. So what's your take on that? Before the Second World War, I think they fished it out pretty well, didn't they? Because that was commercial fishing again, it hit it too hard. But during the war, there was the cod come back because my grandfather was on the coast watching the war on the towers. And they used to put go through the minefields and put long lines down to catch fish, you know. And they was catching plenty of cod and big turbots and all sorts. I've got pictures to prove it, what they took at the time, you know. But then after the war, obviously, fishing boats all get together again and and hit it a bit too hard and then they all disappear again but you're right yeah he said the cod disappeared again and then in 1963 we had that well it disappeared from around the shores put it that way but uh, they were still out in the middle of the channel but uh, we had that cold winter didn't we and um, I think it was at the right time when they could all breed so there was a good brood so you think there's a bit of substance in what Yates he says then yeah yeah because they, they, they tend to get fished out you know that's what happens then it blossomed and boomed before starting to dwindle away again. Yeah, it dwindled away again by about 74, I suppose, 75. But I mean, what commercial fishing boats and what anglers catch are two different things, you know. If anglers are catching them, normally commercial boats aren't. And if commercial boats are having a really good catch, it normally means the anglers aren't going to catch any, doesn't it? So one don't necessarily go with the other sort of thing. But yeah, it did. It dwindled down about 74, 75, I suppose. And then we had uh, the fish, the herrings out, didn't they? And we had a herring ban, I think, 77 to about 80, wasn't it? One of the main predators of the cod is the herrings. So when they fish the herrings out, then the cod obviously could breed better. So by about 1980, it would be about 82, 83, there was plenty of cod again. But the cod couldn't find much to eat because there weren't so many herrings. So they were eating each other. So we was catching cod that were actually coughing up cod. Because obviously at the end of the day, the stock is governed by the food, isn't it? And it's taken till this present time now to fish them all out again, you know. But I mean, this time I think global warming's had a bit to do with it, you know. It's, uh, it hasn't helped at all. One of the main things I wanted to talk to you about is the Varn Bank. You've had some tremendous fishing there over the years. So could you fill us in on a few details there? Um, well, the Varn Bank's a sand bank. It's seven miles long. I suppose it's a quarter of a mile wide. Show us bits about 15 feet, 12 feet deep, I suppose, something like that. But there's lots of sand hills. There's not many sand hills as what there used to be years ago. Years ago, there was loads of sand hills. When the tide was running, the sand hills were all up on the surface and used to be flocks of gannets used to sit on the end of the bank. And they'd be diving all the time there. Uh, the uh, tide was running because it used to drive the sand hills up but there's not so many there now but that's the main food there is sand hills but of course round the bank you've got a stony ground which normally is covered with brittle stars and um, all sorts of things years ago it used to be like an aquarium you know it was had all sorts of food on it uh, little tiny crabs and um, gross and all sorts you know and you'd see all that when you brought a rock up wouldn't you yeah, so when you brought a rock up you know you'd see all the food on it but course now with commercial fishing they've turned it over and over and over and uh, a lot of that ground now is pretty barren you know you could use it for a rockery in your garden if you wanted to mm, well you bring, you bring a rock up now and there's there's hardly any life on it and all sorts it's been all sorts over the years all sorts it's, uh, it's just it's a question of time you know the, top, the amount of time it's been dragged over 
So the fish do come back. I mean, about two or three years ago, the uh, food did come back. There was uh, a little bit of food did come back there in a spot there. We was getting a lot of cod there. And we had it for uh, several weeks, getting a lot of cod. And every day there was more and more cod there. They was feeding on this food because fish only go to an area for food. They're not interested in the scenery, only what they can eat, you know. And, and, um, and it took a French trawler five weeks, night and day, 24 hours a day to trawl it all out. The time it's finished, the biggest fish left there was about the size of your little finger. And you know, and when you pick the rocks up, we was picking the rocks up, and it had all little tiny crabs and brill stars on them and things like that, you know. And time we'd finished, when you picked all the rocks up, there was nothing on them because the tides are so strong. They keep turning the stones over, and of course the food all floats away, doesn't it? What sort of commercial fishing does it attract? Well, when we first used to fish, we had areas out there we used to fish because years ago the trawlers didn't have the navigation gear. I mean, all this new GPS and that is what's changed everything because your navigation is so accurate. You know, you can fish to within feet of things, you know. So they used to keep to the cleanest ground, you know, which was less work. And there was, there was a lot more fish about. There was a lot of fish swimming through, so they didn't have to wander. And the commercial fleets had, like, tramline toes for trawlers and things. And, and, well, they knew they weren't going to damage gear. And that, that gave them a living, you know, because there was... Fish were making their way around the coast, and there was a lot of them, so you could keep going to the same spot. But of course, as the fishing got worse, so they wandered all over the sea and bits of ground what they never touched, which were virgin sort of thing, which is what we used to fish on. They've all been trawled now, you know, and flattened some of them. And back in the good old days, what was the species mix? Basically anything. I mean, it was cod used to be there all year. Cod used to get there in the summer because the water used to be clearer years ago. We don't seem to get the clear water now like we used to, but I think that's down to global warming because I think I think the uh, ecosystem, 30% of the ecosystem has been messed up by this carbon that drops on the sea overnight and it's killed all the, the smallest things first, you know. But, uh, of course, the water doesn't seem to clear so much now, but in the summer the water used to get so clear that you, you couldn't catch fish up on the bank when it was of a daytime because it was too clear but in the evenings you know you, you could take like a thousand pound of cod in the evening because they'd all come up there for a feed you know and that I take it was on the bank itself as opposed to fishing around the edge of it that's it yeah you fish around the edges of a day and then depending what colour the water was really you could you could, you knew where you were going to fish by the colour of the water you used to look at the colour of the water and so you knew roughly where you were going to stop you know what about tactics and baits the anglers got much more effective now. I mean, if, if anglers were as good at fishing then as what they were now, they would have, I don't know what they would have done with the fish. But, you know, over the years, anglers have got more clever at what they're doing to, to catch fish, you know. So. The quality of the tackles got yeah, better. Yeah, quality of the tackles got a lot better. The line better, yeah. as well. You can fish stronger tides with yeah. braided line. So, which were at best, lures or bait? You could do both, you know, there's a lot of tide out there, but obviously it slacks, but not for long sometimes, but we used to do a bit of everything, you know, we used to, sometimes we used to anchor up, depending on whatever caught fish, but drifting normally caught the fish, because fish ain't stupid, they ain't going to keep swimming against the tide all the time, they just sort of nose into it, don't they, and just sort of drift down with it, don't they, so, you know, you used to drift along and used to always do better drifting, most times anyway, unless the water was dirty, then you, know, you try and anchor up, you know. I suppose it would have been perks, rubber eels and feathers back then in the days before shads. That's it. That's it. Well, we didn't have shads years ago, did we? We used to just use like plastic feathers and shiny perks. Like now we've got shads and jelly worms and all sorts we use. But the fish are pretty sort of 
particular at what they eat, aren't they? They've got a couple of big eyes on top of their head and they know how to use them, don't they? So they're a bit choosy what they take sometimes. All of that said then, how does what you had then compare to what you had there these days? Peaks and troughs, years ago we used to get peaks and troughs, you know. I mean back in the 70s there, there was loads, early 70s there was loads of cod there. And you know, and you go out there and I counted one day there was about 30 big commercial trawlers. I think it was when they had the cod war, didn't they? That was in the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, and some of the bigger trawlers tend to come down our way, down around the corner. And I know one day I went out there and counted about 30, these trawlers going up and down. Well, there wasn't much left after that, but then sort of a couple of weeks later, there's loads of fish there again, you know, because the fish were out there all over the sea swimming about, where now there's less of them. So it takes a long time to fill it back up again. Fish are a creature of habits, aren't they? I mean, when a fish is born, it might only be an egg, but it knows what its parents have done before it, and it goes and does it the same, doesn't it? You know, so they used to have stop-off points. I mean, fish used to swim from one part of the coast to the other, and they'd have places where they used to feed. And it's a bit like you driving the motorway up to Scotland, isn't it? And stopping at petrol stations or something on the way up. Well, if they took all the petrol stations away, you probably wouldn't drive to Scotland, would you? When I first made contact with you, Matthew sent me a selection of catch photographs, which are absolutely mind-blowing. Also, a list of achievements and accolades, including the Folkestone Port record on a number of occasions. Time now, then, to put the modesty aside and touch on a few of those, if you will. Yeah, well, that was the Gravesend Angling Club, wasn't it, Billy East? But they were good fishermen, you know. If you had good fishermen, you could produce the results. It wasn't so much chuck it and, you know, you could chuck it and chance it and still catch fish years ago, where nowadays, if you do that sort of thing, you probably catch nothing. You've got to, you've got to really go with it, like, you know. But what we was catching, we had these catches, we used to go to wrecks and things, you know, and people wanted to do it, so... But what we was catching was a mere drop in the ocean, I think, to what they was catching commercially. Because that particular catch, 4,000-odd pound, we went on that wreck and we spent five hours on it and caught all them fish. But I happened to be, a few years later, I happened to be speaking to a, I think it was a Danish gillnet skipper, who happened to come into Folkestone. And I said to him about these wrecks, and I said to this particular wreck, I said, do you ever fish that? Because he was shooting nets all the way from Denmark right down to Newhaven and back again. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, we fished that one. So I said, oh, I said, there seems to be quite a few cod on it. He said, oh, yes, he said, we, don't, we only fish it for a couple of days. He said, he said if we can't take a 1,000 kit, or, no, 100 kit, which I think is a 1,000 stone of cod in one shirt, he said, we wouldn't bother shooting on a game and go to the next one. So what we was taking was a mere drop in the ocean compared to what they were taking commercially, you know. Any outstanding individual fish? Don't know, really. Don't know, it was all quite a good cat. We had all sorts of fish, didn't we? We used to turn back when you used to fish over the French coast and you yeah. fished, well, you fished over there for 20 years, really. Yeah, yeah, so we went over the French coast there. We started fishing over there in rough ground What the trawlers didn't fish. It used to be lobster ground, you know, the lobster boats used to come up from Jersey and they used to shoot across there through that rough ground. But, you know, when you used to pick the seabed up, you used to pull a rock up on the seabed, uh, you know, the amount of food that was on it was unbelievable, you know. And, of course, you knew that when the cod and that we're going to have a feed that's where they're going to be isn't it because they don't feed all the time I and mean, we were speaking to the scientists once and, and they reckon that these cod sometimes in the summer would only feed for about 10 minutes in 24 hours so they just wasn't interested you know they come and done up here tagging some cod sometimes there and um on the van there and they said they couldn't they couldn't keep eating them sand hills because it would kill them they had to have a varied diet it's like you if you kept eating cream cakes you wouldn't last very long so they have to have a varied diet so they be on the van there and they'd be catching, eating all these sand hills and then they sort of up up when the tide run 
towards the southwest up to the bullock. They go up to the bullock and eat all the brittle stars and they stop up there for a tide and when the tide changed back again, they'd get on the tide and swim with it, you know, just like a bus service. And they come, so they're the brittle stars and they come back down the barn and have their sand hills. So it's all about food, you know. And it's obviously easier to eat a few brittle stars off the seabed and a few sand hills and rubber is chasing bigger fish and trying to catch them because they use a lot of energy up, wouldn't they? Of course, angling, we can only catch them when they want to feed. We can't. There could be fish laying on the bottom, you know, knee deep, but if they're not feeding, they're not interested, are they? We're commercial fishing. That's why I say the difference, you can't, what commercial fishing boats catch and what we catch is two different things. They could go to an area and they catch a load of fish and we might not even see a fish there because we have to be where they're feeding, not where they're sleeping. Yeah, but you try telling that to anglers when they're not catching anything. Yeah, I know, yeah. Well, we was fishing off the cliffs there last year you know and there was several of us all fishing down there for about six weeks and really never had much two or three cod or something and the odd bass or something nothing much at all and a gill now come down through there one night he had 80 stone of bass and 40 stone of cod so the fish were there so that port record cod catch was taken from a wreck but what were your catches like out on the barn i don't know we never weighed them half the time you know people caught enough fish and that was that um it depends. I mean, if the cod were there and feeding, you know, you could just pull them up like mackerel, you know. I mean, even up to, what, about three years ago, quite often there was getting like cut under well, a we day, weren't we? Well, we had the best, um, yeah. well, not the best day. I don't know if it was the best day or not, but we yeah. had that one day where we recorded the cod because it was a competition. In the heyday there, you had all sizes, you know, sort of up to 30-odd pounds. You know, we had, we had areas there where we went in the summer and we knew that every fish was going to be between 20 and 30 pounds because that's where all the big cod was laying there. You know, there was probably just having a summer holiday there, waiting for the winter to go breeding again. But now they're all sort of, like we met them uh, two or three years ago, there was all sort of probably four or five pounders, I suppose, and you never see a big cod amongst them, you know, which is not a good sign, is it? You want to see a varied mixture of sizes, don't you, really? I suppose these days you'd struggle even to see large cod like that. No, well, they get caught, don't they? But they get caught before they can get big enough. That's a silly thing about the blinking fishing limits, the fishing sizes, isn't it? I mean, you're catching the fish before they can even breed, isn't it? What's the law down on the bass and the turbot, then? Uh, well, some of our best turbot fishing, we used to get turbot years ago, but it was a seasonal thing, you know, either in the spring or in the autumn, but... Since the cod are gone and the water's got a bit warmer, we're catching quite a lot more turbots now, you know. And we were so usually getting 40, 50 turbots a day, sometimes 100 turbots a day, you know. But uh, and been quite easy to catch. But there, there's no big ones really, you know, a big one was about £7, you know, where years ago you'd get September time and you'd have them up to around £20, you know, nice turbots. I think BCW was about 23 And you're catching those sorts of numbers still these days? Uh, not this year, we did last year, yeah, we, was, we didn't catch no big ones, but we was getting a lot, you know, but I mean, that's been completely mutilated by the French gillnetters now, so, <laughs> which seems strange to me, because I mean, the, the, I think the catch limit over here, for English fishing boats, is about 350 kilo a month, well, uh, they're shooting about 7 mile a net each, 24 hours a day, so they're catching them by the tonne, you know, mm. I don't know how this conservation works, someone ought to explain it to me one day. Yeah, same rule should apply to everyone. Yeah, I don't know. I did hear that the French fishermen have said to the French government that with this Brexit they didn't want the fishing limits changed because if they can't fish up to six miles or in closer of a night, you know, they wouldn't be able to make a living. So I don't know. 
What about accolades? Got top bow in 2015 for the European Federation of Sea Anglers. Now, just as a note on that about the rules and regulations, well, it's like the bass. You know, it's supposed to be a, a conserved stock and it's an EU regulation that they're conserving the stocks, which is at the moment 3% bycatch for trawlers and things like that. Yet there's been about five French trawlers out there where the bass are trawling up and down 24 hours a day at five knots, four and a half, five knots. So they're towing mid-water gear. They're not catching Osmac, well, they're catching bass. You know, and, and we're fishing there and we're only allowed to keep one per person. And that, that's what sticks in your throat a little bit, I think, which is why most of these, well, every, every fisherman I know anyway, has voted out the EU because they don't want to keep seeing that going on in front of them when their hands are tied. And, that, and we get in the harbour and there's a couple of people down there from the fisheries trying to catch us with one over. We've only got eight anglers on board, so if we had one over, we'd only have nine. You know, and you sort of think, well, they're catching them by the tonne right where you are. And when it's all the same regulation. That's what I think sticks in people's throats, which is why uh, they don't want to have that sort of going on alongside them. Well, it's rubbing your nose, isn't it? You can have conservation if everyone obeys the rules, but you can't have conservation if, you know, one of the countries out of six is the only one actually obeying the rules because everyone else is carrying on regardless. But with the... Um, that super skippers, there was, um, I think there was, I've done a few bits for the website, but there was a super skippers and there was, then it was entered into the top skipper, which is like, um, I think there was about eight skippers entered into it, ones that have been previously nominated, uh, and then you get a free day up to sea angler. I think that's what that one was about. Um, but then recently, just last month as it happens, um, some people wrote in, or a couple of anglers that we take out, must have wrote into sea angler, and they gave us, um, Skipper of the Month, or I can't remember what it's called now, Charter Boat of the Month, or something like that, uh, for the Royal Charlotte and the Porsche again. So that was always, it's always nice to have. But I mean, a lot of these awards and all these different things, they're only as good as the people that, you know, write in and, and put it forward. And if I spent long enough standing on the boat convincing someone to write in, say how good I am, then uh, you could have a wheelhouse wallpapered with awards, really. So, but it's not. It's always nice to get one when you know it's not been off your own back. It's it's nice to get one that you know you've given someone a good day. Or well, as it was one of the blokes who wrote in, I think we've given him forty trips. So it took forty trips of <laughs> him catching fish before he wrote in and actually uh, thought he'd nominate us. But when my dad was saying about the farm bank, I remember my dad and granddad saying how there was coal that used to grow on it, and that was you know you could see the coal on the bottom. And that, yeah, yeah. Well, if I pass on to my dad, he could tell you about that. No, he's talking about the gross. It's gross coral. It grows about eight foot an inch a year, I think. On a slightly different tack now, can we look at some of the reasons why anglers struggle to catch fish? I'm sure you see all sorts of things and try to guide people in the right direction, some of which they won't listen to. In their minds, they know best, but still think it's your fault if they don't have a good day. So what are the reasons you picked up on why some anglers don't catch as much as they should? Well, I don't know really. I mean, a lot of them say to you that they come out to do what they want to do, so they're happy doing what they want to do. Whether they catch fish or not, they just want to do it, you know. Years ago, they could come out and do that, couldn't they, for the cod? You know, they bring out the bathroom tap with the hook stuck on the end or door handle off the car. I wish we had seen. Yeah. hook stuck on the end. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they go home with a bag of cod, you know, so, but it doesn't work now, does it? <laughs> 
bloke about once with a perk that was two foot long and he still caught a fish on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, and also... Uh, oh, we had another bloke come out and his buddy died, so he, he took the feathers off it and made some feathers up and he caught plenty of fish on that. Another bloke, he came out, his goldfish had died and he put that on the hook and caught a cod on there. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the reason why some days are better than others... Well, I don't know, but... You, you fished to the conditions, didn't you? That's, that's yeah, the thing. You, yeah. get, you know, with, with angling for uh, for the charter boat angling, you know, the first thing you want fine weather, and then you want the tide wants to be right, you know, not too much tide, and then you want the water the right clarity, you know, and then the fish have got to be there, and also the fish have got to be feeding as well, you know. So it's difficult to get it all exactly right, but when you do, then you get a, a good catch, and you know, as long as you can catch something every trip, it, it keeps them interested, doesn't it? And, you know, and if the fish are there to catch on that day, then they get a better day, don't they? Have you found that expectations gone down too over the years as fish stocks start to decline? Oh, it has, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was sort of a fun day out years ago, wasn't it? A different sort of thing, you know, where now you you really got a bit of, bit of effort into it. Although, depends what you want to catch, you know, it just, you, you never know. Sometimes people ain't catching fish because they've dragged it along the bottom and lost all their hooks, so that's why they're not catching any fish. Yeah, well, that's it. But, you yeah. know, you've got to take a bit of interest in what you're doing, haven't you? But if you try to help people and they won't listen, what can you do? You can't, really, because if you keep on at them, they accuse you of moaning. So you just sort of try to advise them and say, well, look, I wouldn't do that. You know, really, you want to do it like this. And they say, well, I'll carry on doing this for a bit of time. And quite often, they will keep doing what they're doing. If, if you... Tell them, if you just go out there and say, well, you won't catch nothing with that, they will persevere with it, trying to prove you wrong. But quite often they don't. So, although a bloke did prove me wrong the other day, so, because I told him he wouldn't catch any bass on bait, and he did, so. What about those days when you can't get to your favoured marks? What else has Dover and Foxton got to offer? Well, you've got, you got plenty of places to fish. It depends on the wind direction, you know. You, you don't want it too rough, do you? So you can fish near the shore. There's quite a few skate, dogs, smooth downs, things like that, you know, bullusses. It just depends where you can get on the day. But, of course, we've got strong tides in the channel, so... It's knowing where to get out of that yeah, tide as well. It's, it's sort of trying to figure out what the weather's going to do next, really, what the tide's going to do. Like, we had, I suppose we've had slack tides this week, you know, and one day there wasn't any tide, the next day there's 3.2 knots. The next day there's no tide again, you know, it's... Because you're in this narrow bit of channel, whatever the weather's doing up the North Sea or down the southwest, it influences the amount of tide and colour of water and everything in this channel. So you've got to sort of work out what's happening either side of you and not what's in front of you, you know. But when everything's on the cards, you've got a wide selection of wrecks, rough, banks and all the rest to go out, whereas other parts of the country may be more restricted in their options. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've we got all sorts of ground. We've got the good winds and that, you know, we've got all sorts of, same as all around the coast really I suppose you know they've got all different bits of ground but uh, there's 300 wrecks within 10 miles yeah, of Dover yeah there's 300 wrecks within 10 miles you know but of course with this GPS now anything that's charted gets fished so you're better off finding your own bits of ground we tend to find our own little bits of ground and try and sort something out there you know and if you, if you pick up a bit of ground with the right sort of food on it you know that when a fish comes along it's like a bus stop isn't it the food's there like a bus stop when the fish comes along you're going to stop and have a little feed isn't he so and with all options open, what would be your personal favoured first choice? Well, wherever we catch fish, really, because if they catch fish, people go home happy. They want something to eat, don't they? So wherever it's easiest to catch the fish, you know. I mean, if the water's dirty, no point going to the farm. You're not going to catch anything, you know. So, But uh, out there, there's all sorts of fish. You get blonde rays and that if you anchor up, you know. But then, obviously, 
the tie's pretty strong, so you've got to do it at the right time, you know. Years ago, we used to always say we're going to the Vaughan, but nine times out of ten, we were fishing somewhere else. We used to fish the region over the French coast and all this, you know, and the wrecks and that. But it was much easier because people, if you tell them you're going somewhere, they want to know the ins and outs and the origins of the universe about it, you know. Where if you just say we're going to the Vaughan, simple as that, end of story. You haven't got to spend all your time explaining where you're going and what you're doing, you know. You just tell them that to make the day easier. Yeah, that's it. Just so you know, because the Vaughan got its name, because we just tell people that, and they say, oh, we want to go to Vaughan, so that's where we went. But quite often, you know, sometimes if it was over the French coast, it would take us twice as far as the Vaughan. You'd say, well, the Vaughan's a long way out. Yeah, say so the Vaughan's a long way out today, you know. <laughs> so. But if you got the fish and they were happy, what the hell? That's it. It's like we used to do longer trips, you know. If, if we was going to be steaming for three or four hours, you know, we didn't want uh, a Spanish Inquisition all the way there and back, did you? So one of the things was you say, well, look, just leave me alone so I can just sit and just look out the window, you know. Otherwise you get a sore throat by the time you got there, wouldn't you? <laughs> so <laughs> A lot of the anglers on them sort of trips, they bring lilos and things, you know, and they, and they blow them up and just go sleep on the deck. I know one day we, we went out and we went out early in the morning and uh, the blooming tide was running like a sluice, you know, so we called about eight cod, you know, and said, well, the tide's running like a sluice, and it was in August time, actually, and um, we thought, well, the fish ain't biting, so they're going to bite in the evening, aren't they, because the water was clear, so we hung about and hung about, and the blooming tide didn't slacken until the evening, and in an hour and a half in the evening, we had about 2,000 pounds of cod, just like that, just getting the tide right, you know. Once it got running again, then it just went dead again. You know, it's coming out for an evening feed. Question of patience. Something I haven't got too much of, unfortunately. Well, it's the iPhone world now, isn't it? You order it on the iPhone, it's got to be there, isn't it? So, But fishing ain't like that, is it? It's like years ago, you know, they used to turn up with their old rod and a pair of boots and waterproofs, and they didn't say, we're going to do this, and we're going to... they just said, well, we're going fishing. With your years of combined experience, what are the biggest changes you've witnessed over the two ports? Well, Folkestone used to be the biggest angling port on this part of the coast. There used to be about 40 boats there. But, I mean, now, I don't think there's one now. But that's how it's changed, you know. It's um, mainly because of amenities, I think. You know, the amenities at Folkestone haven't got any better. They got worse, you know, the harbour's silted a bit and so you can't stop out too long or you've got to go out and stop out and not come back, so... That's how that's changed, you know. It's, at the end of the day, right now, really, you need amenities, you know. People need to drive down there, park their car nice and easily, get on the boat and off any time, you know. And that was a problem with Folkestone. Of course, Dover's not like that. But then, of course, at Dover, you can go out any time. But then you have got slightly stronger tides and rougher seas. But, it, you know, you can get away from them. Once you get away from Dover, you just got to get there and get back again. But once you're away, you're right. So. What about tackle, tactics and fish numbers? Those surely must have changed, and probably not for the better with the fish. No, not the fish stocks, no. Even commercial fishermen themselves say, where it's, the seabed's been ruined so much, you know, they say, well, I speak to a fisherman not long ago, and he said, oh, it's be 100 years, he said, before you'd see it come back if you didn't touch it, you know. It's been mutilated, isn't it, really? And ever to bring anglers into this normal, genuine, I'm not talking about um, commercial type anglers, I'm talking about genuine sort of anglers that go out there ever to bring them into this stocks business, you know, it's stupid, isn't it, really? If an angler with a rod with one hook on the end is so effective, I mean, this, if this rod with one hook on the end is so effective, why don't they get all them trawlermen to chuck all them trawls out and get themselves a rod and reel then? I mean, if you only had people with rods and reels, you wouldn't need any this um, 
conservation of that. It's more selective if you can catch and can put back. Well, a lot of the anglers don't want too much anyway. You know, they just want something for their tea anyway, don't they? The normal charter boat angler I'm talking about. And, and sort of taking out charter anglers, we want to go out there and catch fish every day. You know, we want to catch fish every day, not loads of fish in one day, you know, because we get paid by the day. So as long as we can keep people happy, you know, go out there and catch fish every day. And if there is more on one day, well, so be it. But if you're commercial fishing, you get paid by what you catch, don't you? If you see a load of fish there, then you're going to catch a lot. I mean, we had a spot where we was catching a few bass. Well, we was catching a few bass there, weren't we? Mm. You know, and we was getting like 30 or 40 bass, uh, you know, and we think, well, that's a good day. Uh, and then a trawler goes through overnight and catches four tonne. That was the end of that. And we've never seen a fish there <laughs> no, since. we've never seen a fish there since. No. <laughs> well, that's because you tightened the fish and smashed the ground up. In your opinion, do you think that angling is dying a slow death right now? For example, fewer young people coming through to step into the shoes of those that drop out. Is it getting more difficult to fill the boat these days, or is the southeast corner still managing to hold its ground on that particular score? Well, that is perfectly right, yeah. The young people nowadays, that they're not... I mean, when I was a kid, you know, we couldn't wait to get out and make ourselves a bow and arrow and throw stones and things like that, where nowadays it, they're all sitting doors, don't they, playing on their playstations. So they don't get out, do they? It's a push-button world, isn't it? I mean, when I was at school, I used to have dip hooks on the... Well, long lines and dip hooks on the sands, you know, and before I went to school, I'd go over there catching cod and soles in September there, you know, be catching soles before I went to school. So what, then, in your opinion, needs to be done to secure Anglin's long-term future? You need closed areas. I mean, there is a future there. I mean, obviously, these uh, quotas and that are helping. I mean, if they hadn't had quotas, then... I think you've been stone dead by now. You know, the quotas are helping, but the trouble is the quotas are only seem to be working six miles outside of the channel, isn't it, if you follow what I mean? Absolutely nothing once you get outside of there, if you're not careful. You know, I was speaking to trawlermen years ago who were trawling up in the North Sea around the Dogger Bank and that, and they said that if a beam trawler went through an area, they reckon it was 30 years before they see any fish come back there. It smashes the seabed up. And now they're using this pulse beaming now, over in Holland, they're using this pulse beaming, you know, where they use a charge, electricity charge, to stun the fish to make it go back in the trawl, you know. Well, of course, they use a charge to stun the fish, what they want, but this charge is, stuns their fish, but obviously it's too big for shrimps and things like that, so it kills all the small stuff. Wipes uh, the area clean. Yeah, wipes the area clean. I mean, I speak to Belgium anglers that fish where these pulse beam trawls have been through there with the electric pulses, and they reckon it's absolutely barren. You put a worm down, and this same worm comes up at the end of the day. There's not even a wilt down there to eat it. When you talk about the future, I think you just need closed areas. You just need to close areas off and, and see what happens, you know. As for the cod and that, I mean, fish are migratory anyway. They might be in one area for this month, but next month they'll be in another area. That's a problem. See, they're migrating from area to area. So it has to be a thing all the way around, doesn't it? It's no good just doing one mile here sort of thing, you know, one square mile here. You need to do a or even in breeding season when they're breeding have a closed time let them breed it's like them turbots you know they've all got row in them well you know when they're going to breed the scientists know when they're going to breed let them breed have a complete stop on it because it worked with the, it worked with the herrings didn't it because the herrings they fished the herrings out didn't they we had a herring band didn't we and uh, you wanted to leave that have one for your tea you know and um, after three years you know there's plenty of herrings and I mean it was after about after that herring band, about 10 years after the herring band, there were so many herrings in the sea, it, it, I've never seen so many herrings, you know? You could smell them, 
there were so many of them. You know, we was there one day in what about 150 foot of water, and there was a shoal of women there. Must have been probably a quarter of a mile in diameter, maybe more than that. And it was from the bottom to the top, and you could see the water rippling as they was all swimming along, and all the oil was coming up off them, and all the fish scales, you know. But then two big trawlers come out of well, I don't know who they belonged to. I think they were English registered, Spanish owned, and run by the Dutch, I think. But they were about. 300 foot long trawlers come out there and they were getting like a thousand tonne a week each. But there's obviously other fish swimming with them herrings, wasn't there? As a fisherman, what effect do you think leaving the EU will have on fishing and fish docks? I don't think it'll have any at all because uh, you could put your limits out to 12 miles like they used to be, but then it has to be policed and I don't think they will. They won't be able to do it. I mean, even now, you know, we was fishing. We were fishing out there a few years ago. There, we was catching a few bass about four and a half miles out, and the French fishing boats and that trawling up and down in the daytime, sort of probably seven to ten mile out, and you know they're watching you. They're watching you and plotting you. So we knew someone up in the coast guard station, and we said, "Are them lot coming in of a night?" So I said, "We'll have a look." And sure enough, when it got dark, they came in there to four and a half mile, and when it got daylight, they went back out again. Nothing's done about it. And then you wonder why you go there the next day and there isn't any fish. You know, you've been fishing there for several days, catching fish, and you go there the next day and there's nothing. Like Hoover's been through there, you know. So this is what you're up against. You're constantly having to think ahead. It's not an easy job. I mean, the fishing would come back, I suppose, you know, if you... Some of it would, but I don't think you'll see some of this cod, the actual cod, you, I don't think you see it, because of the global warming, that's the problem with the cod. You know, they started swimming north and they ain't turned around, they're still swimming. Right, so let's now hear Matt's take on things. Obviously the problems are going to be the same, but with a lot more working life left for Matt, the final outcome could be very different. Well, it's, it's changed in the fact that it's... it's harder, isn't it? Yeah, that it's, it's certainly harder now to produce fish, there's no doubt about that. But it's changed in the sort of experience that you're giving to people, because when I first started with my granddad, as sort of just as a deckhand on his boat on weekends, which was I was about 12, and then I would sort of be there just helping out, and like my dad says, there'd be different people coming, they'd just turn up on the day, and they just want to do a bit of fishing, and that was the simple thing. And the reason... A lot of them bigger catches and, and good days happened is because they would just turn up and they wouldn't dictate what they want to do. They'd just turn up and they'd let you make the best decision on what you're going to do on the day. So, you know, like my dad and granddad, would, they'd look at the tide, the wind, the colour of the water, they'd decide where they're going to fish, they'd have a go. If that didn't produce, then they'd move on somewhere else and they'd try that. And, you know, you'd use your own judgement all the time. Whereas now, the thing that slips up and I think makes it more difficult, is that people turn up and they say, today we want to catch turbot, or today we want to catch bass, or today you know, we want to catch cod. And even for commercial fishermen, they don't go out the harbour and think, right, today I'm going to catch this. They go out the harbour, they shoot their net, or they tow their trawl, and they see what they get. That will dictate on what they then do for the rest of the day. The worst question we get is people phone up and say, when's the best time to go fishing? There's no answer to that question. It's like asking when's the best time for me to buy a lottery ticket. You've got to leave it to the, the person who's been out there and try and give yourself the best chance. If there's not a lot of fish, you really do need to give yourself the best chance to actually catch some fish. 
Whereas if there's not a lot of fish, and then you turn up and say, well, I want to catch this, and there's the conditions aren't right for it, there's even less chance of you catching that. But we do sometimes, quite often, go with what the, the customer asks, because if he says he wants to do this, then we'll try, and sometimes we'll try for half a day. And that might be half a day wasted, but we'll try, and only then, after half a day, we'll then fall back onto what we think is best. And sometimes it produces, sometimes it doesn't. But that's where I think the job's going to be hard all the time because people nowadays, it's a, it's, it's a society where they turn around and they want this at that time. And, and that's the way they think life is, but it's not. Do you think you'll see you through to retirement doing this job? Or will either the supply of fish or even the supply of anglers run out first? Well, no, I, I, I really would like to be in it for the long haul. I mean, we've just invested in a boat, which is a long-term investment. It's, it's been we've put a lot of money into that boat, a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of effort. So, yeah, I've, I've invested in that boat for the long haul to see me through to retirement. The same as my dad invested in the Royal Charlotte when he was, you know, at a young age. He put everything he had to have the biggest, the fastest and the the most comfortable and the, the best equipment and everything else and it, it produced and that's what that's what you're sort of investing in really you're giving yourself the best possible chance i mean on the new boat now well even on both boats we've got all 3d seabed mapping seabed topography really and it's it's the same as what they use on these big trawlers and you can see since we've been using it you can see why these trawlers they're towing inch perfect they know exactly what the ground's like before they even go over it which sort of, it takes, the fish used to have the upper hand, whereas now, through technology, you know, the fish haven't got the upper hand, which is where you need to be strict on quotas, and, well, I, you know, I agree with Medell in the same way that you should have really sort of no take zones. You know, certainly no, no fishing that's going to affect the seabed. That's the main thing, is, you know, all the time the food's growing down there and the habitat's unchanged, you can take a few fish and a few might swim back. You know, if you don't take too many, they'll always come back, they'll always rebreed and it'll always carry on. But if you take away all the fish and then smash the habitat up, then when some more fish swim through, they're not going to stop. And that's it. That's that. that area is dead. Technology constantly gets better, but it needs to to help find diminishing numbers of fish until one day it doesn't work at all because there's nothing left. Either that or anglers have already hung up the rods. Well, yeah, I do, you, you do have days where you think that, I'll, I'll be honest, there are days where you think, oh, you know, what have I invested in here and all the rest of it, but in the same respect as when, you know, it was only a few years ago, we, we had a, quite a good couple of years cod fishing, and um, at one spot, what my dad was saying about actually, that one spot, we had um, a competition on one of the, sort of one of the last days before the trawlers turned up, and it was a police competition and they had to record all the fish and we had, I think we recorded 450 cod on one of the boats and that was on the Porsche that was that day and um, and they were throwing them back, I mean they was only allowed to keep 10 each and the bloke who won the competition, I think he had 71, he recorded 71 cod and there was, there, there was actually, we was catching more as the weeks went by, you know that was the thing, you knew that the habitat was right, the seabed was right, because we was catching more all the time, so fish were coming there, and they were sticking around, and we couldn't thin them out, you know, I mean, we were fishing them... We were spending a little time to go somewhere else. Yeah, that's it, we'd, we'd sort of have a few drifts down through there, then we'd drift a new bit of ground, and then we'd try and find another new bit of ground, and sometimes you'd come across with something, 
then you'd have another bit of ground to add to your portfolio, so to speak. So you're, so you're always sort of, you're not just fishing, but you're farming as well. That, that's the difference, you know, whereas obviously, you know, for a commercial boat, there's no, it's not farming because they want to get what they can and that equals money. But I so say we watched them trawlers go up and down, it was, it was soul destroying because you thought, you know, this was the start of it again. And then again, it's dead. But then, but then after that happened, then we started catching turbot. And that was the same. We we were catching more each time. We, every every day there seemed to be more, and every month that went past there seemed to be more. Until the point where it was, that was the same. We'd have a few drifts, and then we'd go on and try something else, you know. And it was, it was pleasant fishing again for a good couple of years. But then, again, you know, the French have gilnetted that completely to death, to the point where, I mean, I was out fishing today, and I went up on the bank. There was two French trawlers out the back of the bank, and a French gilnet at one end. And we had five mackerel on that bank. We didn't even catch a sand eel. It's only because there's been a lot of activity there in the last few days, and in another week it will start to pick up again. But that is the difference. And never once have I been to a spot and caught, even when we've had hundreds of cod some days, and then gone back and there's been nothing for my own doing. So you know the angler, is he's not damaging the seabed. You know, that little one pound weight or sort of eight ounce weight that he's tapping up and down on the seabed, that isn't smashing the seabed up. And that's, I think, you know, that's what it all comes down to. And if you had some no-take zones, I think you would, in, you would change the way it is. You really would. So, but we still, we're still getting fish, and we still sort of muddle through. And and when all's lost, then something else turns up. But you've got to be out there pretty much every day to, to keep giving yourself a chance. You know, if you're only going out once a month, then it makes it very difficult and that's I think what's kept us going because we've got two boats and because we've got one of them boats generally out most days that's what's helped keep us going but I think the problem is if the angling drops off to the point where you are only going a few days a week maybe one day a week it won't be worth staying in the game because you're going to make it too hard for yourself to actually produce fish and when your dad retires which of the two boats will he keep for yourself? I'll, I'll keep the Porsche it's a, it's a different generation now before people would just get on the boat and as long as they caught fish they wouldn't worry and they'd want a boat that would catch fish and the Charlotte did that hands down it was heavy it drifted square with the tide you know it made no noise whatsoever it had an exhaust with a silencer that went out the roof so there was no noise on the water line even you know and it was a slow running slow revving engine which didn't spook the fish fish don't, fish don't take notice no nah, I mean we've been over that fish you know shoals of fish especially bass which are easily scared uh, we've been over it with that boat up and down all day and there's still the main shoal in the middle you're not spooking them and yet sometimes you see a different boat go through there and then you go over it and it's scattered completely scattered so you know that some of these others they're getting one good drift and i'm not saying other charter boats this could be private boats this could be any boats that are some of them have the sounders running too high and you know noisy exhaust and everything else it all plays into the fact that if if you can let you know you don't want the fish to know you're there really because then they'll keep they'll they're still they're still relaxed they'll keep eating and that's what you want to do so but the Porsche we spent a lot of money on that putting silencers on and everything sound insulation and to make it as comfortable as possible to try and give ourselves the best chance still but the difference between the Porsche and the Charlotte is it's the comfort and I think a lot of people now they do want that extra comfort if they're not going to fill up bags and bags of fish they want a pleasant day, you know, they want a good working toilet where you can stand up in, they want tea and coffee, and you know, they want it to be quiet, they don't want to smell the exhaust fumes, they want everything, they want somewhere they can get out the weather as well and warm up, 
and that's what that boat does, which is why we, we designed it the way we have. Now, your dad obviously is going to be a hard act to follow, that's for sure. So as more of an observer than anyone else could ever be, how do you sum up his achievements? Wonderful, really. I mean, it was, it was, you couldn't be more proud of, really, to be honest. There's no way I'm ever going to come close to that. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't expect to come close to that anyway. Even, in them, even if it was the same fishing now, I still wouldn't come close to it because the top and bottom of it was he had the knowledge and he was out there every day. And to be out there and to understand how it works, you've got to be out there most. You know, you've got to sacrifice your life to be out there every day, and he did, you know, and that was all weathers as well most of the time. And quite often, you know, even my granddad would say to me, you know, you want to listen to him because he knows what he's talking about sort of thing. And, and he, knew, he knew to have the right gear at the right time and he invested the right money in the right equipment. You know, he had, he had a sounder, you know, a Simrad um, sounder in 1976, which was about £5,900. Now, that was a lot of money in them days and the boat only cost 21000 and that was uh, only a year previous. Now, what person would spend a third of the value of the boat on a piece of fish finding equipment? Because most people would turn around and say, oh, we didn't need anything in them days. You just go out the arbor and you catch a few, you come back in, you still get paid the same money. But he wasn't happy with that. He wanted to know where the fish were, why they were there, what the ground was like. And that meant investing a lot of his money into that, back into the boat. And eventually it starts to pay off when people realize that it does make the difference. But you know, a lot of people wouldn't have done that. They would have just said, well, just take the money and then 10 years later, you'd have been out of business. Beats all the various Angler Top Boat and Skipper Awards. Well, there was a lot that was never said about, you know. I mean, we, I, I know from my granddad and my dad that there was many, many days where, you know, you wouldn't, you didn't want it publicised too much what you was doing and how you was doing it because the reason you caught fish every day is because you kept it to yourself and you looked after them spots. And some spots he fished for 20 years unhindered. There was lovely spots really where you, you knew you could go and if all else fails you could go there and generally catch something. And if you had 10 of them spots then by odds you would always pick up something on you know, one of them. And sometimes two, sometimes three. And, and you'd, work, you'd work it like that. So there was a lot of t- days where we had really good days but you wouldn't, you wouldn't send any pictures up, you wouldn't publicise, you wouldn't even tell anybody. And sometimes you'd even... Say to the anglers when you get off the boat, if anyone asks you, just, you know, if you a few or something like that. So, because you're trying to do it for the, for your own business. You want to conserve your own business as well. You don't want to, there's a, there's a lot of people now. The, which inter- is, the internet's sport. Yeah. yeah, the internet's what sparked it really, because it's all about the big I am. There's many boats, as soon as they get, as soon as they catch a fish, it's on there. And look what I've caught, you know, oh, this is how good I am and all the rest of it. And when no one else is catching, they don't know what anybody else is catching. But because no one else is putting it on there, then they're assuming they know, and that's why they're putting it on there to be the big I am. But all you've done is told everyone what you've caught. At the end of the day, I don't see it ever coming back to what it was, but I do see it ticking along quite nicely if it's well managed. And, um, you know, and it looks like things are happening. So I hope, especially leaving the EU, getting back the 12 mile limit, that would make a big difference, I think, if it was enforced, which if people push hard enough, it will be enforced. Well, at least we have a fighting chance now. It all depends on what sort of a mess they make of the EU divorce and whether or not they're willing to sacrifice some objectives, one of which always seems to be the stuff the general public can't see and therefore tend to curl least about, which is what goes on out of sight down there on the seabed. We'll see. Meanwhile, many thanks to Mick and Matt Corker for taking the time to reflect on the past, present and future here.